This morning we'll be headed to Mark chapter 6, um, starting in verse 45. You're welcome to turn there with me in your Bible. In his gospel, Mark is trying to communicate to his readers who Jesus is. At this point in the book, he knows that his work will be more effective if rather than telling us who Jesus is, he shows us who Jesus is. And so Jesus' own disciples don't really understand who Jesus is. And while Jesus ministers to the people that they encounter, he's also teaching and testing his students. So the story we'll read today recounts one of those teaching and testing moments. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Dear God, it's foolish to talk about you without talking to you. And so I ask that this time of looking at your word, it's a, I ask that it's a conversation. That you speak to us through this text, even as we speak to you, even as we praise you, even as we ask you questions, even if even as we come to you with our struggles, our hurts, our needs, would you speak to us? God, help us to see who you are in this passage. God, we know that your word does not return to you empty, and so we ask that um, today we can see how it accomplishes its purpose. And we ask all these things in Jesus' mighty and precious name. Amen. On March 31st, President Biden posted this on Twitter. On Transgender Day of Visibility, we want you to know that we see you just as you are, made in the image of God and deserving of dignity, respect, and support. We'll never stop working to create a world where you won't have to be brave just to be yourself. Now, there's a lot that we as Christians can affirm here. Transgender people are made in the image of God, and they do deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. 
There are also some things we might want to challenge. But this is not a sermon about transgenderism. What I'm actually interested in is what President Biden says at the end of the tweet. We'll never stop working to create a world where you won't have to be brave just to be yourself. While I understand Biden's sentiment, not wanting to perpetuate systems of injustice that make certain demographics um, need to show special bravery just because they're different, I think the world Biden has in mind is a utopia, a place that could never exist. If we stop and think about it, we'll realize that life requires bravery of all of us. If you don't have to be brave to yourself, to be yourself, is it really a self-worth being? Life requires bravery. If a human person is as fragile and beautiful as the Bible says we are, being one will require bravery. And I would say it's always required bravery. Even in the Garden of Eden, a place without sin, without death, without fear, the very place where God was present on earth, Adam and Eve had to be brave just to be themselves. Think about the task they were given. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the livestock and every creature that moves along the ground. Even in a perfect world, that task would require immense bravery. On top of that, they were given a warning. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Already there's a test implied. Already there's a chance of failure. And passing that test would require bravery. Finally, we have to name the elephant in the room. The snake that's in the garden. I don't care. I don't care if there's no sin yet. If you're in the presence of a snake, you're going to need bravery. That's, that's just my take on it. And this is no ordinary snake. It's a snake that talks. It's a snake that, as we discover later, has rebelled against God and his creative purpose. And he wants to destroy the walking self-portrait that God has made. So there's a lot riding on this test. So yes, even in the garden, Adam and Eve would need to be brave. But they didn't have to find that bravery within themselves. They had immediate access to God's presence, power, and provision. As long as they drew life from him, they would have no fear. They were created to be brave. We were created to be brave. But like Jesus' disciples, we don't live in the garden. We don't have immediate access to God's presence, power, and provision. Rather, we have what we would call immediate access to God's power, presence, and provision. We do experience fear. We are exhaustible and weak. We experience the consequences of Adam and Eve's rebellion every day. And the test that faces them still faces us. We struggle against the serpent, but without the advantage of the garden. As Connor pointed out earlier, there's a lot wrong with the world. It's a world that requires bravery. 
And if the world's truly as broken as we see it to be and as the Bible says it is, without Jesus, we have reason to be discouraged. We have reason to be afraid. But if we're going to appreciate all that happens in this story in Mark, we have to take into account the things that Mark tells us happened immediately before it. So if this story is one episode in Mark's series, we have to have a moment when we say, previously in the book of Mark. And this is what happens immediately before this story. The disciples have just returned from a demanding mission trip. Jesus had sent them out in pairs to preach repentance, to drive out demons, and to heal the sick. While they were gone, Jesus' cousin John was beheaded. The disciples are physically and emotionally exhausted. They just want to tell Jesus about their trip. They want to eat a home-cooked meal, go to bed early. But when they all meet up with Jesus, many, so many people are coming and going that they don't have a chance to eat. They don't have a chance to rest. They're constantly being interrupted. They haven't had a chance to, to take a break. Jesus knows what his disciples need, and so he takes them in a boat to a quiet place so they can eat and rest. But someone in the crowd must have seen them leave. When they land, the very same crowd they left behind them is waiting for them on shore. They can't get away. When Jesus sees them, instead of sending them away and telling them that he and his disciples need some rest and some quiet time, he has compassion on them, and he teaches them. It's already late in the day, so it doesn't take long before the people uh, become hungry. But the disciples have been hungry for hours. So the disciples say, Jesus, we have to do something about this. Tell the people to go into the villages and get something to eat. It's time to send everyone home. They were probably hoping for some peace and quiet and a chance to eat something themselves. But Jesus, as we know, has a different idea. You give them something to eat, he says. We know the story. The disciples immediately recognize the impossibility of his suggestion. It would take more than half a year's pay. And Jesus had told them not to take any money with them on their trip. How were they supposed to feed so many people? But Jesus has something else in mind. And he sends them out in the crowd to see if they can find food. All they find are five small loaves of bread and two fish. It would hardly curb their hunger, so there's no way 20,000 people would each get a taste. Jesus does something amazing. Before they realize what's happened or have a chance um, to eat any of it themselves, they're passing out handfuls of food to strangers. Soon enough, they, along with 20,000 other people, are full. They've never seen anything like it. And as amazing and energizing as this probably was, the disciples were already tired. And now they've just distributed food to 20,000 people. For those of you doing the math, that's about 1,667 people per disciple. I've never fed that many people in my life. Then they pick up 12 large baskets of leftovers. You can imagine how they felt. They're exhausted. They're fatigued. They have aching feet and aching backs. Now they're probably wondering if Jesus really knows how tired they are. And if he knows, does he care? 
Will he do something about it? And this is where we pick up this morning's text. As we see in verse 45, Jesus does see, he does know, and he does care. He tells the disciples, get in the boat, go ahead of him to the next stop. He will dismiss the crowd himself. So they're relieved, but they still have to row across the lake before they can rest for the night. Hopefully, a storm won't come up. We all know how that went. A storm does come up. It should only take a couple hours at most to cross the lake, but several hours later, the disciples are still in the middle of it. In the text, Mark tells us that the disciples were straining at the oars. But Mark is not just describing the intensity of the disciples' effort. He's telling us something about their experience. He's chosen a word that means they're being tortured, tormented, examined, tested. This storm is agonizing them and proving what they're made of. Mark also attributes a kind of personality to the waves. He says that they're, they're like an adversary to the disciples on the lake. So we're given clues that this is a moment that demands bravery. It's not just a storm. It's a test. And there's an adversary who wants the disciples to fail so the disciples are rowing with all their might and not making any progress. They're exhausted, and every time they go two yards forward, they seem to slip one yard back. It's torture, absolute torture. They're in a fight for their life, just trying to get out of the storm. And just when they think it can't get any worse, they see a ghost to the stern. So you can imagine the disciples are in the boat and they're rowing, and just ahead of them, there's a ghost. Suddenly, they're even more troubled, even more disturbed, even more shook up than the waves around them. The storm is not just outside them now, it's inside them. Now, in that culture, the sea represented the place of evil, death, and chaos, and was sometimes thought of as the realm of the dead. So when Jesus, when the Jesus disciples um, jump to the conclusion that it must be a ghost, they're not crazy. They're simply operating within the framework of their culture. It may strike us as weird to think, oh, there's a person there, it must be a ghost. But for them, it probably was something they'd almost expect. But that doesn't make it any less terrifying. They probably heard about it, but now it was actually happening to them. The fact that John the baptizer had been executed shortly before this may have meant that death was fresh on their minds. And so as they're looking out the stern of the boat, they see this ghost, but it's not just standing there, it's walking toward them, and it's gaining on them. That would be terrifying. At this point, they're probably wishing they hadn't gone on the lake after dark. What was Jesus thinking, they were probably asking but they hear a familiar voice through the wind and waves. Cheer up. It's me. Don't be alarmed. Jesus? How could it be Jesus? The rain is so thick that they don't even recognize him until he steps into the boat. The wind and waves settle down immediately, and so do their heart rates. They're beside themselves, at a total loss of how to explain or account for what's just happened. Somehow, 
They're afloat, but completely overwhelmed. They rowed ashore absolutely stunned. No sooner have they arrived on land that the people there recognize Jesus immediately. They've been up all night fighting the wind and waves after an exhausting day, and it starts all over again. As they travel on foot, people are bringing their invalids to Jesus, begging to touch the edge of his cloak to be healed. It's an amazing story, and it doesn't end neatly. There's not really a happy ending to it. We're left with this picture that the disciples are just as exhausted, in fact, more exhausted than they were when they started out. And I think this is partly what makes the story so relatable. We understand the disciples' fear. We've all been caught in a storm, whether it's a real physical storm or a storm of life, an emotional storm, a circumstantial storm. We've all had days that go on forever. We all know what it's like to have to pick up the pieces and keep going. Like the disciples, we're slow to recognize Jesus and understand his work. But if I only say this much, I'm leaving out what Mark finds is the point of the story, what the story's really about. As I said earlier, Mark's goal is to communicate who Jesus is. But if I only tell the story from the disciples' perspective, I can't say anything meaningful about Jesus who it, about who Jesus is, because, as Mark points out, the disciples didn't understand who Jesus was. At the end of this story, the disciples were still confused. It didn't make any sense to them. So if I tell the story from their perspective, it's not going to make any sense to us. They didn't understand the miracle of the loaves. And they didn't recognize Jesus when he was walking to them on the waves. So how could they recognize Jesus' identity if they couldn't recognize his face? The people on shore recognized Jesus before his own disciples did. So if I'm going to faithfully relay Mark's message, I have to tell you the story from Jesus' perspective, too. In verse 48, Mark tells us that Jesus saw the disciples. He wasn't checking his phone, anxiously waiting for a text from the disciples. Hey, Jesus, we made it safely to the other side of the lake. Hope you have a good night. He wasn't worried when they were going to make it. He saw them. He wasn't surprised by the storm. He wasn't ignorant of their struggle. It was his distance, his transcendence, that gave him a unique perspective of the disciples' situation and allowed him to see the test they faced, allowed them to see the snake, the serpentine adversary in the waves. It's in this test that Jesus intends to reveal to his disciples his presence, power, and identity. Because Jesus reveals his presence, power, and identity, we can be brave. We can be who God has made us to be. Fortunately for us, Mark wants to keep us from repeating the disciples' mistake. He wants us to recognize Jesus. And he carefully shows us how Jesus reveals his presence, his power, and his identity, so that we will recognize him. But before I flesh this out, um, a few things need to be said. First, I anticipate for some of us, the story may seem 
completely incredible. Mark's expectation that we believe him when he tells us that Jesus walked on the water, calmed a storm, and healed people with a touch of his cloak may seem rather naive. After all, these were uneducated peasants telling this story, right? They may be superstitious or gullible enough to believe that these miracles happened, but why should I be? But Mark doesn't expect us to simply play along with the story. In fact, the disciples' astonishment acknowledges that we may be incredulous as well. Mark anticipates that reaction, and he tells the story in spite of what seems to be unbelievable, even to them. And even if Mark has accurately depicted what the disciples saw, isn't there another explanation for it? Some people suggest there are. Perhaps Jesus was walking across the lake on a sandbar, some people say. The problem with this is that the disciples would have encountered any sandbars in their path as they crossed the lake, causing them to be unimpressed after the initial surprise of seeing someone apparently walking on water. So even if Jesus could have skipped across sandbars to the disciples, the force of the storm would probably have knocked him flat and certainly would have made it impossible for him to catch up with a boat of 12 grown men rowing. However we might like to dismiss Mark's account, the New Testament makes even greater claims than this, claims of which we have good historical and circumstantial reason to believe. So if we're going to object to Mark's story, we have bigger fish to fry. And so um, we're going to rely that Mark's given us an accurate um, testimony of what the disciples experienced. Second, um, some of us may be wondering if Matthew's version of this same exact story tells us that Peter walked on water, why doesn't Mark include it in his account? While it's impossible to know for sure, I think there are three things to keep in mind when we, when we try to answer this question. First, it's widely believed that Mark got his information uh, for, for his gospel from Peter, Peter's own first-hand account. Second, if Peter really did inform Mark's gospel, he has a tendency to self-deprecate. He has a tendency to leave out anything in the story that makes him look good, makes him look like he got, he, he got it, he understood, and he includes his blunders. He includes all the moments that make us think, wow, Peter, you really did that? Man, I can't believe it. He may have wanted to let one of the other apostles tell the story. Third, and perhaps most significant, Peter's own analysis of the event may have dictated what he told Mark to include. Peter may have realized that his own experience walking on water wasn't the point of the story. It was a sidebar. Jesus was the point of the story. And so Mark is trying to faithfully relay Peter's message by showing how Jesus reveals his presence, power, and identity. So first of all, because Jesus reveals his presence, we can be brave. Jesus' sight of the disciples straining at the oars didn't just inform him. It moved him. He wasn't content to remain safely on the mountainside while his students were fighting the sea. He went out to them, and he climbed into the boat with them. 
Likewise, when Jesus sees us being tormented and tested, he doesn't stand there and watch. He comes to us and he climbs in the boat with us. Second, because Jesus reveals his power, we can be brave. In this story, Jesus does three things that indicate his power. Walking on water, calming the storm, and healing the sick. The combined force of these acts ought to instill bravery in the disciples and in us. If Jesus makes people hungry, he will feed them. If he sends them into a storm, he will bring them out. If God is for us, who can be against us? Jesus himself said that we will do greater things than these. We might think of um, the lyrics from the hymn, In Christ Alone. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Because Jesus walks on the water, he has power over evil death and chaos, the things that water represented. Because Jesus calms the storm, he is in control over every situation. Because Jesus heals the sick, we can trust him in every illness. Because Jesus reveals his power, we can be brave. Finally, and most probably most central to Mark's narrative, because Jesus reveals his identity, we can also be brave. By walking on the water, Jesus reveals something not only about his power, but about his identity as well. If the disciples knew their scripture, they should have recognized Jesus' acts as things only God could do. When Job in the Old Testament is tested himself, he says, God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Isaiah calls God the one who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters. In Psalm 77, Asaph says of God, Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. So Jesus is not just claiming access to God's power, he's claiming to be God himself. And he's trying to do it in a way that the disciples can understand, with more than just words. Mark tells us that Jesus was going to pass by his disciples. In doing so, Mark is not just making a comment about Jesus' trajectory across the lake. Those words call to mind a number of episodes from the Old Testament. Only two verses later in his book, Job writes, He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. The disciples saw Jesus, but they didn't perceive him. They didn't recognize him. And I think it's something about those miracles that while they revealed God, they made it difficult for Jesus' own disciples to recognize the man that they knew and loved, their teacher. something that's reflected in the, the Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Veiled in flesh, 
the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Jesus' body is what makes it possible for us to see God, and yet, in a mysterious way, it conceals God's glory from us, making it safe for us to be in his presence. And when Jesus' divinity shines through his human body, people don't recognize him. They don't expect it. Those words pass by also remind us of the tenth plague on Egypt, when God passed over those that trusted the blood of the Lamb. They tell us that God is our Savior. They also remind us of when God hid his prophets, Moses and Elijah, in the rock, and he passed by them, revealing his glory to them. So Jesus, in this moment, he's not just walking up past the boat. He's doing much more than that. He's on a path to reveal his glory, reveal his divine identity to his disciples, whether or not they recognize it. He's revealing to them that he's their savior. He's revealing to them that he's the creator and sustainer of the world. And he's revealing to them that he is God, he is the lawgiver. Jesus also reveals his identity through his words. There aren't very many of them in the story. We only have one direct quote from Jesus in this passage. It's when Jesus speaks to the disciples saying, It is I. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Mark uses the Greek phrase, ego and me, to capture what he says. Now that may seem irrelevant to us, but today, while we would probably translate these words of Jesus as, hey guys, it's me. Ego e me is a special phrase in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's a phrase that the disciples, if they were paying attention, would probably recognize as the divine name that God gives to his people. So it means I am. Not just it's me, but I, I am. Jesus may have not just been saying, hey guys, it's me. You can relax. He may have been saying, take courage. Yahweh is here. Don't be afraid. Finally, by calming the storm, Jesus reveals his identity and not just his power. Jesus links his identity to God, whose spirit hovered over the waters at creation whose spirit caused the waters to recede at the flood and drove back the sea so Israel could pass through on dry land. In all these things, Jesus makes it clear that he is the creator, the sustainer, and savior of the world. He is the word of God, the son of God, and the anointed Messiah of God. So because of Jesus' presence, power, and identity, we can be brave. We don't have to let fear have the final word. Yes, there's much to fear in this world. There's a, there are big reasons to be discouraged. Many of you are facing real tests. I'm facing real tests, just like the disciples. It's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to be overwhelmed. It's easy to miss what Jesus is doing in the storm. 
It's easy to miss who Jesus is. It's easy to just not recognize him when he comes to us. But because of Jesus' presence with us, we don't need to fear. We can be brave. Because of Jesus' power that works in us and for us, we don't need to fear. We don't need to be alarmed. We can trust him and be brave. Because of Jesus' identity as God, we can be brave. He is the creator and sustainer. Even today, he upholds everything by the word of his power. And there's nothing that happens to us that is not, there's nothing that happens to us that's outside of his control. There's nothing that happens to us that he can't climb in the boat and calm the storm. So because of Jesus' presence, power, and identity, you can be yourself. Now, I'm not saying you can be whoever you want to be. I'm not saying God gives us the bravery to define ourselves. That's a very different understanding of selfhood than the Bible um, offers. Rather, the Bible gives a picture of selfhood that's about a new self, a self that's created and renewed in the image of its creator, a self that makes us look more like Adam and Eve in the garden and less like the serpent. A self that's closer to Jesus. So when I say, you can be yourself, I'm saying you can be the person God made you to be and the person God's remaking you to be. We truly can fulfill that Eden command to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, ruling over the fish in the sea and the birds of the air, the livestock and the creatures that move along the ground. Because Jesus rules over the sea, we can be fishers of men. Because Jesus has power over death, over evil, over chaos, we can be brave. We can take the good news to a world that needs it. We can face Adam's test with boldness, and we will face it. Every day we face the test. Will we choose to draw our life from God? Will we let him teach us wisdom in relationship with him? Or will we look for wisdom, for life, for power, for comfort, for safety elsewhere, and eventually forfeit all of it? We can be brave in the face of those tests because of Jesus' presence with us, his power for us, and his identity. We don't have to fear the snake because the one who walks on water has crushed the serpent's head. We don't have to fear death because death no longer has mastery over him. In the words of Peter, we don't have to be surprised at the fiery trials that we face, the fiery ordeals that come on us to test us, as though something strange were happening to us. Instead, we can rejoice in as much as we participate in Christ's sufferings, so that we may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. The disciples were amazed, but it, it wasn't an amazement of joy. It was an amazement of incredulity. 
of fear, of complete bewilderment. They didn't know who was in the boat with them. Was it still a ghost? Was it really Jesus of Nazareth? Or was it God? But we don't have to be surprised when we face trials. We can expect them and know that because Jesus has passed the test, that we can pass the test as well through him. And in fact, it's not riding us on us anymore. It's not riding on us anymore. It's riding on his perfect track record. We can look at our tests as an opportunity to see Jesus when he passes by, to see Jesus when he reveals his glory, his power, his presence with us, and let that be our comfort. So we can let Jesus' presence, power, and identity make us brave. We can say with David, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies, my adversaries. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Would you pray with me? Dear Jesus, thank you for your word. God, what we're given in this text is not just a picture of what you did on a lake 2,000 years ago. It's a picture of what you did when you left your heavenly home. You saw us. You saw the test we were failing to pass. You saw how we were being tortured and agonized, how we were not living the life that you created both by our actions and by our experiences. You saw that there was more for us. You had made us to be brave, and instead, fear so often had dominion over us. But you weren't content to stay on that mountain. Your transcendence gave you a special perspective of our experience. And you came down. You got in the boat with us. And it's your presence with us that calms the storm. It's your presence with us that says to the chaos in this world, all the ways that it's run rampant, all the ways that it's become disordered, halt, peace, be still. And it's your presence that says to our lives, peace, be still. I'm with you in this storm. You don't have to be afraid. You can rejoice when you suffer because I'm with you. You can rejoice when you suffer because this is a moment my glory will be revealed. And God, we, we confess that we don't often have that attitude when we are tested. 
God, would you help us? God, would you help us see what you see? Would you help us to remember your power? God, help us to think about the things that you've done for us in the past when we go through trials in the future. Bring those things to mind, and and God, help us to understand them so we're not like the disciples that pass out food to thousands of people and yet have no idea what they're doing, have no idea where it came from, have no idea how you made it, but rather help us think about those moments and realize who you are. Recognize your power. Recognize that you are God. So we're in those storms. We realize that if if you can feed 20,000 people, if you can feed this whole earth, if you send us in a storm, you will bring us out of it. And I pray for um, those of us today that are really experiencing those storms. Those of us today that are exhausted, that are wondering, does Jesus know? Does Jesus see? Does Jesus care? And I ask that you would touch each and every one of us and say yes. You'd remind us of those those memories. And if we don't have memories like that, God, would would you make them with us? so that we can be brave, we can be the people that you've created us to be. And we ask this in Jesus' mighty and precious name. Amen.